Well, good morning. My name is John. I have the pleasure of serving as one of the elders here. And this morning, I have the pleasure of presenting God's gracious word to us. Today, as you can see on the, the diagram, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Luke, specifically looking at Luke 12, verses 4 through 12. This is a passage that focuses on something I think we all know very well. That is fear. Am I right? Anyone in here ever been afraid? Hit Maybe the monster was under their bed, maybe in the closet, or maybe it's just me. Well, it's been well documented that we live in a day and age where fear is very real. Sociologists and psychiatrists are saying as a society we are becoming more and more fearful. Did you know that there have been identified over 400 different phobias? There is a new one to me that I discovered yesterday. I'm going to have to slowly read this. It's called arachibutyrophobia. You heard of that one, Eli? Well, this is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. It's there. Google told me. Would really make those PB&J sandwiches a challenge, wouldn't it? Um, but in all seriousness, despite the fact that life expectancy in our country is at an all-time high of 79 years old, we are more and more fearful. Isn't it just as common nowadays to tell someone to be safe than to tell them to have a good day? I believe that is a symptom of a fearful society that we're living in. And I think if we're being honest, we ourselves are often fearful. In our passage today, Jesus speaks directly about this topic. The title of our sermon today is Fearing God with Confidence and Trembling. Today, we're going to learn from Jesus about our fear. First, we will learn to not fear impotent man and impotent death. Then, Jesus will tell us to place our fear in God. You heard me right. Jesus is not going to tell us not to fear at all. He is going to tell us to place our fear in God. As Jesus concludes our passage by exhorting us to how to fear well. We will see that we are to fear God with a confident yet trembling fear. Now, first I must confess, I come to you to stay, preaching on this topic, yet recognizing that I may be the person that needs to hear it the most. One of my dad's favorite sayings was, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Am I right? Maybe you've told that to someone else yourself. Well, I'm going to break that rule a little bit today because I am an anxious, fearful person. There's no doubt that my lovely wife, Jamaica, has had to endure this the most. One little example she has learned is that when I complain about any sort of body ache, health-related thing, she just needs to come back with some comfort. <clears throat> she learned this lesson the hard way a number of times, but I can specifically remember five or six years ago when I was having some sort of pain, something was not right in my chest. She responded, and I could even hear the sarcasm in her voice, but she responded with, well, maybe you're having a heart attack. <laughs> she paid the penalty for sure, because even though I knew she was joking, it was at least a day or two where I was verbally processing every little ache and pain I was feeling, Googling up all the reasons why it might or might not be a heart attack, and she was going back to the, the state and true line of reassurance. 
And from that day forward, she has learned that if it's something medical with John, uh, not time for my sarcasm. It's time for that reassurance. So I share that just saying with you, I'm a learner here as well. I need God to teach me about fear as well. With that in mind, that we're all here learning together, uh, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we will open up our Bibles to the book of Luke as we learn about Jesus' teaching on fear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to speak your truth in your word. I thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, I ask you would open our ears to hear your truth today and open our hearts to receive it. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work inside of us to show us the ways in which we are fearing things other than you. And may we place our fear and our confidence in you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are in the book of Luke. Luke is found in the New Testament of your Bibles, or also digitally on your phone, uh, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. We're going to focus most of our time and energy on the 12th chapter, verses 4 through 12, but I do want to set the stage for you just a little bit. Generally speaking, it's agreed in our passage today that Jesus was in his final six months of ministry. And he was spending much of the time traveling and on the road. In Luke 9.51, it says, When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he, that's Jesus, determined to journey to Jerusalem. Now we know from, from all the Gospels that the end of those travels of Jesus towards Jerusalem would end in him on the cross, giving our life for our sins, then after the cross, raising to life on the third day, and then 40 days later being raised up to God the Father. Yet in these final months towards his greatest work, Jesus did not limp to the finish line. He did a ton of ministry and spoke a lot of hard truths while he was on the road. James graciously shared with us last week how he spoke about the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the lawyers, Today, again, we'll hear about fear. I'm going to be breaking our reading today into three sections based upon the three main points of Jesus' teaching. Those points, again, are don't fear impotent man and death. Rather, fear God and have a confident yet trembling fear. First, let's talk about what we're not to fear, impotent man and death. This lesson is found quite directly in verse 4. Let's read Luke 12, 4. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. Chapman University, you may be familiar with, it's in Southern California. They put out an annual survey that's called the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. I found the 2022, the most recent version, to be pretty interesting. The top five fears they reported were in this order. And this is of Americans, keep in mind. So the first one was, we fear corrupt government officials. Second, people we love becoming seriously ill. The third ranked fear was, understandably, Russia using nuclear weapons. The fourth one was people I love dying. And the fifth most common fear that was expressed in their survey was the US becoming involved in another world war. I think we can see in these results 
that in our culture, there's really two primary categories of fear. We fear other human beings, and we fear death. Jesus is addressing both of those in this passage. Interestingly enough, in regards to our fear of death, it isn't just confined to our own death, but also to the death of those we love. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, Some of us fear losing our loved ones, maybe even more than we fear losing our own life. Or maybe for many of us, death is not imminent, or we don't think it's imminent. So we live in blissful ignorance of our own, but we think a lot about losing our loved ones. Either way, Christians are to resist this fear of death. The Bible is incredibly clear on this point in our passage today, and really throughout Scripture. Why are we as Christians to not fear death? Well, that's simply because we have a hope that conquers death. There's two key passages I want to look, with, look at in that regard. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 52 to 57, we see Paul here talking to the Corinthian church about the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to read now from, from that passage. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that the sting of death is our sin. According to the law, we deserve death for our sins. Yet because of Christ who paid the penalty for you and for me of our sin on the cross, instead of death, we receive life. So death is made impotent, powerless to the believer in Christ. Its sting is gone, and its victory is the Our victory is achieved because Jesus died for you and for me. Paul is showing us here our future. We will be clothed not with corruptibility, but with immortality. What a promise. If we hope in that promise, we ought not to fear death. Death is not the end of us, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really only the beginning of a life, not the end. The next passage I want to look with is, again, the Apostle Paul, this time speaking to the Thessalonian believers and speaking specifically to the loss of a loved one who also knew the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14 says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This passage personally brought me great comfort in the loss of my father. And really to any believer, as a Christian memorial service ought to be a hopeful event. For sure, it is sad. And it is sad to know we won't see our loved ones for a time. Maybe there's someone today you're thinking of that you dearly miss. And I dearly miss my father. 
Yet I have great hope. We have great hope. Knowing that those that trust in Jesus, they leave this world, but they go to a better place. We also know that one day we will be raised and given imperishable, perfect bodies that will live with God forever. In John 11, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. If we put our trust in Jesus, we never truly die. We may leave this earth. We probably will, unless if the Lord returns. But we will never be separated from the love of Christ. Let me remind you of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Paul lists out all the things that can't separate us from his love. What is one of the prominent things on that list? Death. Death is impotent to a Christian. Jesus defeated it on the cross, and we will not be held down by it. We must recognize its impotence, and we must battle, wage the battle in our minds to not fear death. Now, if we aren't fearing death, it should logically follow that we are also not fearing fellow man, whose biggest weapon against us would be death. Our fellow man cannot have any impact on our eternal security. Yet, if I'm honest, maybe if you're being honest, I think we'd have to say that at times we often do fear other men. I do. I can surely fear others' opinions of me, and as a result, as a result I don't always say what I should say. Sometimes I don't say anything at all. Sometimes for me, I'll admit I am so afraid to say the wrong thing or be accidentally offensive, I've avoided saying kind and encouraging things at the worry of offending. Ridiculous, I know. We're not to fear other men. The Bible is clear. And there are numerous scriptures. I chose one just to highlight that, and that's in Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. We face such a tempting path to fear what men say or do. Don't we? I, I think we do. We're daily bombarded with man's opinions. In the age of social media, all the time we're getting other people's opinions of us. It's so easy to let the fear of what other men will think about us or say about us to shape our behavior. Thanks be to God, though. The Christian should not be controlled by that fear. We must fight against that. As Jesus said here in Luke 12, the worst thing another man can do is take your life here on earth. And if we're being honest, most men aren't going to do that. <laughs> but as we've seen in scripture already, the great hope of a Christian is that life is not all that there is. There's something much greater waiting for us after death. May we not forget that. Now, beyond just causing anxiety and worry that are debilitating and not God-honoring, the other problem when we fear man and we fear death is my next point. It prohibits us from, false or from properly placing our fear where it should be. When we fear men and death, we are not fearing what we ought to. The fear of man and death turns our heart away from the proper fear of God, which is my second point today. 
Christians are to fear God. Let us return to Luke 12 and read verse 5, where Jesus tells us to place our fear in God. Luke 12, 5 says, But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. I want to begin here by just noting how countercultural this is. We're told by our American culture to be carefree. Life should be easy and stress-free. And if you have fear of any kind, that's a problem. Fear nothing, right? That's the mantra. Countless books and pages have been written about how to overcome our fears. There is an inherent assumption in our culture that when we are fearful of something, that that is a problem. Now, granted, most of the things that people fear today are the wrong things, as I've said earlier. First and foremost, we already established that we ought not to fear death or other men as Christians. Yet we aren't told in Scripture to be completely fear-free. In fact, we're told by Jesus here in Luke to fear. We are told that we should fear the only one who has the power to truly bring eternal death to us. We're told to fear God. He is the only one with the authority to send us away forever, away from his presence, to what would truly be death. That is eternal separation from him. That is what the Bible describes to be hell. Eternal separation from the love, mercy, and grace and the presence of God. Completely left alone to our own sin and our own corruption. That's why we're to fear God. Personally, I think the lack of fear of God is one of the biggest problems that plagues our church. It's not a popular sermon topic because the fear of God isn't particularly appealing to our human sensibilities. We don't want to fear anything. We want to be carefree, right? We just, let's ignore that part. But instead, let's just focus on the grace and mercy and love of God at the exclusion of the holy and righteous God that Scripture consistently calls us to fear. We're told either implicitly or sometimes explicitly, directly, that because God is so gracious and merciful that you don't need to have any fear. We're told it's all good, and we don't really need to worry about addressing the sin and evil in our hearts and lives. The biblical truth, though, as Jesus teaches here in Luke, is that an appropriate fear of God should guide our daily lives and decisions. Jesus is echoing here what we hear throughout the Bible. We ought to have a fear of the holy God that drives us towards obedience to his good commands for us. Now, this fear, however, is not the same exact fear when we think of it in most human terms. Uh, Leon Morris, a, a biblical commentator, said this in his commentary on the book of Luke. This kind of fear, he's speaking about the fear of God, is continually regarded in the Bible as a necessary ingredient in right living. It is an attitude compounded of a recognition of the greatness and the righteousness of God on the one hand and our readiness to sin on the other. Fear of this kind, the, the right fear of God that he's speaking about, guards against presumption and must find its place in a right faith. This godly fear is a proper fear that doesn't leave us in anxiety and worry, but instead places our focus upon the great God who takes those earthly fears and anxieties. 
To focus on God and on what he desires and on what he commands must be put before every decision and everything we do in life. It will also help us to not fear the wrong things that will bring us the stress and the anxiety because we're looking to the wrong place. Well-known author Oswald Chambers put it this way. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Isn't that true? True for me. Truth is that the fear of God is good for us. This is a good fear. It expels all those other harmful fears. Here's a small sampling of scripture passages extolling us to this fear of God. I'll list them up there for my note takers. Um, and I'm going to read them to you. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Ecclesiastes 12.13-14 through 14 says this, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And lastly, in my, my three of many scripture passages I would note on this topic, is Psalm 112, verse 1. Hallelujah, it says. Happy is a person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. There are three of many, many passages where we see what godly fear is and that we're commanded to it, just as Jesus commands us here in Luke. We are to fear the Lord. Again, I, I've touched on this a bit, but there's a lot of cultural misconceptions, especially even about God, when we get wrapped up in, in this idea of fearing God. I think that's why we can avoid it as a sermon topic, because of our misconceptions. God is not an all-things-go, hug-you-out-at-all-costs kind of God. He's just not. He's not a big teddy bear. <laughs> Sorry. He's not that long-bearded, cuddly man in the sky that's saying, you do you. Or he's saying, live your truth. He's not. He's not just saying that. He's saying, live the truth. Live my truth. God has clear commands with real consequences that we're called to live our lives under. And I would add, we're blessed, and life is blessed when we live under them. They are good commands. But nonetheless, they are a command. You might have noticed in those three verses I just read, and there are numerous more throughout the Bible, that the references to fearing God mentioned either his commands or living in his wisdom and discipline. God's commands, as I said, were gracious, but they're not optional. They are for our good from the one who made us and who knows us better than we know ourselves. I know we think we know what's best. God does. It's good to fear God. In our Luke passages, passage, Jesus uses repetition to hammer this point home. I know James spoke last week about the literary device here of repetition. And we see it here again. Jesus said, but I will show you to one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. And then the repetition, yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. 
It's a simple question. I got to ask it. Do you fear God? I challenge you today to consider that. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I living truly in the fear of God? Here's a few questions towards that end to help us diagnose whether or not we're fearing and living in the fear of God. So my first question would be, do you follow and prioritize God's commands? One thing, great to see you here this morning. Is it a priority for you to be here, gathered together with other believers on Sundays and at other times? Another way, do you love your neighbors sacrificially? Are you training your children? If you've been blessed to have children, are you training them in God's word? Do you give of your time, your treasure, and your talents to build God's kingdom? My second question, kind of along with the first, you'll see a lot of overlap here. Do you seek fellowship with God? So again, do you gather with his people, but then also do you spend time in prayer? Do you spend time in his word? Do you ask God for direction in your life? Are you seeking and desiring God? My third question, are you repentant of your sin? We've all got it. Sin, that is. Not necessarily repentance. Repentance has two aspects. First, it's confessing and admitting that you've done wrong. But it doesn't stop there. Second, it requires us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Are you in a lifestyle of repentance? Are you constantly reflecting upon your sin and turning to God? Are you seeking to turn from those behaviors? Are you still struggling in the same patterns of sin? If you are, that's a good indication that you're lacking some necessary fear of God and his commands. Fourth, this is a big one to think about, I think. In your decision-making, the choices and decisions you make, who or what is your ultimate authority? Is your life governed by God's word? Or if you're being honest, is it really governed by something else? Maybe common sense? Maybe, maybe the culture around you? Do you do what God says, even if it doesn't line up with the wisdom of the world? Who is your ultimate authority in your decision-making? It's a challenging question. I have to ask that myself. Lastly, and again, there's a lot of overlap here, but do you fear men too much? Maybe I bring this up again because it's something I struggle with. Are you preoccupied with what other people think about you? Do you spend too much time, social media, trying to build up your image, trying to present yourself as a certain person? As Christians, we're called to consider first, second, third, and so on, what God thinks of us, not what other men think of us. Again, th this one I wrestle with. There's a lot of issues in today's day and age. We're taking on the Christian worldview is not a popular one. We have to choose between fearing God and fearing men. A few years back, one example for me is, is I really had wrestled with. I really had to confront myself on this issue. I was asked to present a lesson at, at my public school that just was not in line with my Christian worldview. It just conflicted with God's teaching that he created male and female and that that's a beautiful thing. 
By God's grace, I did finally go to my supervisor and shared with him that I couldn't and wouldn't teach that lesson. I struggled, though. I had so much anxiety and fear about talking to him about this. I so wanted to avoid this at all costs because I was concerned about what he might think of me. I was concerned if my colleagues would catch wind and hear about the stand I took. And then I was bothered by, why am I so afraid? Why am I so fearful? But I knew what I had to do. If I feared God, I had to follow his commands. Plain and simple. I had to ask myself, who do I fear? By God's grace, he gave me just enough strength to have the conversation and to take that, that stand. Now, I, I share that again, not to say what a great God-fearing man I am. There have been plenty of moments where I failed. However, I want to share that just to relate that it can be difficult to fear God and not to fear men. But the, 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 the illustration there also speaks to my last point. God met me in that moment, and God gave me just enough strength and just enough enough grace to fear him and to follow his commands. We are to fear God, you see, with confidence and trembling. We see this in our final Luke, our final portion of the Luke passage, our biggest chunk of scripture, which is Luke 12, verses 6 through 12. So let's read that here as we consider how we are to fear God, trembling yet confidently. Verse 6 says this, Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worthy. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Jesus just gave, in verses 4 and 5, a, a very strong teaching. He said, don't fear men and death, but rather fear God. Graciously, he now gives us some words of encouragement and confidence. While also not losing sight, though, of the seriousness of the situation, as we either fear God or don't fear the almighty, holy God. Jesus begins this portion of scripture again with a common device. He goes from the lesser to the greater. He teaches us that if God even cares for the sparrow, which would be considered relatively insignificant in those days, thus he must care greatly for the man whom he made in his image and who is very significant. In fact, he even goes so far to count and number all the hairs on our head. Hard for me not to comment on what's happening with my hairline, but I'll, I'll try to refrain. Look, I failed. Um, 
Anyways, how great is God's love and care for us. He knows the hairs on our head, my goodness. His love is so great. He tells us in verse 7, I find this interesting, he tells us to fear not. Now, that might seem contradictory because, wait, he just told us to fear him. But the fear he is speaking to in verse 7 that he's saying to fear not is that misplaced fear, misplaced fear that we've been, he talked about in verse 4. Fear not those things that can kill the body. Fear not the men of this world. You have a God that deeply cares for you and intimately knows you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. So don't fear those momentary and insignificant things. What an encouragement. Jesus goes on to give us more confidence to fear him and to not fear anything else. He tells us in verse 8 that if anyone, anyone acknowledges him before others, Jesus, as he calls himself the Son of Man, will also acknowledge him before the angels. What a hope. As we all know, it's not easy to overcome our fear of man. It's not always easy to acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Yet, we are promised that when we do, Jesus in turn acknowledges us before his angels. Imagine that. Wow. Now at the same time, Jesus doesn't lose sight of the stakes in the situation. Verse 9 says if we deny Jesus before men, the, the reverse is also true. We will be denied before the angels of God. The stakes are high. Jesus goes on to give us more warning. Now, while we can be forgiven for speaking out a word against Jesus, verse 10 says, this is one that captures a lot of people's attention, is that the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I'll say that again. The one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In Christian circles, we commonly call this the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've heard of that. Maybe you've been concerned you've committed that. I'm going to be hope to put your mind at ease. Because initially it does seem at first glance, maybe it's possible to lose our salvation if I just say the wrong thing. So, a few comments. First of all, in understanding any passage of Scripture, you've got to consider the whole counsel of Scripture as well. Jesus is God, and he is not going to contradict what he has said elsewhere or what it says elsewhere in Scripture. In John 10, 27, we read Jesus saying this, My sheep, that being his, his people, his Christians, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, says this to the church in Philippi. I, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Those who are truly the fathers, who are truly Christian believers, can't accidentally say the wrong words and lose their salvation and lose their chance of forgiveness. 
Don't misinterpret that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Wayne Grudem, a biblical scholar, says it better than me, so I'm just going to quote him. His, his book, Systematic Theology, he says this. The context indicates that Jesus is speaking about a sin that's not simply unbelief or rejection of Christ. Yeah, that'll be coming up later. That is a long quote, so I'm not putting it all up there. Um, but the context indi- indicates this. Three things. A clear knowledge of who Christ is and the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. That would be the person who commits this unpardonable sin. Clearly acknowledges who Jesus is and the power of the Spirit. Yet, that person has a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his opponents knew to be true. And lastly, that person would slanderously attribute the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. That would be the the unpardonable sin. In such a case, Wayne Grudem continues to say, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would already have been rejected. Persuasion of the truth will not work, for these people have already known the truth and have willfully rejected it. He goes on to say what what I've put here, to put our minds at ease. The fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek after God certainly do not fall in the category of those who are guilty of it. If you're worried you committed it, that's a great sign you didn't. Now, I hope in saying this I put your mind at ease. You're truly seeking the Lord and repentant for your sins. This unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks about is not something you've done. Yet, I don't want to lose sight of why I believe Jesus references, references it here in the passage. I think he's primarily emphasizing the stakes are high. Not everyone receives forgiveness and is made right before God. We fear God with confidence that we are his and he won't lose any of his sheep, but we're also trembling, knowing that one day we will stand before a holy and righteous God. I believe the Apostle Paul puts it, puts it well. He addresses the church again in Philippi. This is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So let me be clear. The Bible is abundantly abundantly clear that we don't earn salvation by our own works. We don't earn salvation by what we do. That's not what Paul is saying by work out our salvation. No, we are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus, not by our works. However, our works what we do, and our daily fear of God through a life submitted to him and his good commands, that's evidence that God is living in us. That's evidence that God has regenerated us. This work of the Holy Spirit in us can't be minimized. As we conclude our passage, let's see how God's Holy Spirit gives us great hope and confidence. Please read with me uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. 
whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities. Don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. What a great hope and confidence. The Holy Spirit is with us. This, this verse, uh, preparing this sermon, brought to mind um, a, a saint, a, a, a believer that I certainly admire, um, and that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may be familiar with the life of German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born in Germany in 1906, and he lived through the tumultuous Nazi era in Germany. In fact, on April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. Dietrich stood up to the lies of the Nazis, and he refused to fear them or to fear death. Is that a fabulous example for us? In fact, part of his story, if you may or may not be familiar, in 1939, Dietrich briefly moved to New York City at the beginning as things were brewing in Germany. His plan initially was to sit out the war safely, and then he would go back to Germany afterwards. But shortly after he got there, the conviction of the Holy Spirit spoke too strong. He was strongly convicted that no, the Holy Spirit was calling him to go back to Germany, to, to live there, whether uh, through, through the, the war, whether or not that meant he would face death. Bonhoeffer feared God's commands more than he feared men and more than he feared death. So he went back to Germany. In one of his classic books titled The Cost of Discipleship, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it, Bonhoeffer said this. Human beings should not be feared. They cannot do much to the disciples of Jesus. Their power stops with the disciples' physical death. The disciples are to overcome fear of death with fear of God. Disciples are in danger, but not from human judgment, but from God's judgment. Not from the decay of their bodies, their bodies, but from the eternal decay of their bodies and souls. Anyone who is still afraid of people is not afraid of God. Anyone who fears God is no longer afraid of people. Bonhoeffer lived that statement out beautifully. It's told that while the Germans were preparing for his hanging, Dietrich gave a final sermon the day before he was hung. In that final sermon, he said the words, This is for me the end, the beginning of life. Dietrich, he knew that this world was not all there is. He knew that life only begins at death for those who know Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is true that we aren't to fear impotent man and impotent, powerless death. We're instead to fear God and follow his commands. This should bring some trembling. This is a big deal. This should be taken seriously. However, the reason we can do this, the reason we can fear God is because we're not alone. We're not alone. 
You're not doing this on your own strength. Don't even try. (laughs) You aren't answering to death. You aren't answering to an unbelieving humanity in your own strength. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Isn't that a great hope? Isn't that awesome and confidence inspiring? Let us take heart. Let us confidently reject the fear of death and confidently reject the fear of other men while appropriately fearing an almighty, holy God and following those commands he has for us that are good. Let us take heart that we're not doing that alone. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us helping us to follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your commands. We know that they are good for us, and yet, Lord, we also know we will fall short. We will not fear you without your help. So we thank you that you don't just tell us to do something without empowering us to do it. May we sense your Holy Spirit inside of us. May you work in each one of our hearts. May your Holy Spirit, Lord, guide us and direct us as we seek to put you first, as we seek to follow your good commands. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now turn to the Lord's Supper. If you have your communion elements, please gather them. If you don't, you can gather them at the back, or as I will be doing, catch it from my son. Perfect toss. We do this each week because we're feeble-minded, we're forgetful, and we know that we fear the wrong things, don't we? We easily fall back into the fear of man. We easily fall back the wrong direction. But we come to the table to remind us. This is our reminder that we have great confidence and great hope. We don't have to fear death. It's impotent because Christ died on the cross that we will be made made new again, that we will be made holy, not because of our own works, but because of the works of Christ on the cross. So I invite anyone who trusts in Jesus to take the meal with us in a moment. I would also say to those of you that, that don't know Jesus, that don't have your trust in him, first I would say thank you for coming. So glad you're here. You're in the right place. I would say this meal at this point is not for you. It would be disingenuous for you to take it if you're not truly trusting in God. But I would encourage you to seek. Seek him. The book of Matthew says, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus says these words, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If you don't trust Christ, don't take the meal today, but I encourage you to seek him. For those of you that have placed your trust in Christ, I turn to the bread. And we know from scripture that the night Jesus was to be betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. He took the bread, which was undoubtedly easier to open. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat with gratitude in our hearts to what Jesus has given for us.
Then Jesus took the cup. And he said that this is my blood shed for you. Drink in remembrance of me. Let's drink with gratitude. I'm going to give you now a moment to turn to God in prayer. I encourage you to seek forgiveness for ways maybe which you didn't fear God. Maybe you feared men. Ways that you went your own way. I encourage you to thank God for his gift, his gracious gift of forgiveness. And I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to give God a, a proper fear. That you might do that with the Holy Spirit's help. But you can't do it on your own power. After you've had a minute to pray, I will close us in a word. So I invite you to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. Lord, give us more confidence. May we sense your Holy Spirit inside of us. Let us take heart in that you have done the work for us. We thank you this day for Jesus and for his gift. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. into this next uh, series of songs, we'll start with Cornerstone. And would you just stand as you feel led and prompted by the Spirit to um, continue in worship uh, through song.
darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every eye and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Sing, church. Christ alone, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. righteousness alone faultless will stand before the throne Christ alone cornerstone weak made strong in the Savior's love Christ alone, just our voices. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all.
lips be filled with stories of the mercies that I found. You're the light, you're my path, you're the shepherd of my soul, all I am, all I have, Holy Spirit, lead me on. to words you speak in the thunder in the stillness let your voice be clear to me let your voice be clear to me you're the light you're my path you're the shepherd of my soul shepherd of my soul. All I am, all I have, Holy Spirit, lead me on. Holy Spirit, lead me onward. Trusting, leading, holding, clinging Till the day you call me home song together. Let us declare, uh, great are you, Lord. Amen. Say those words with me. Great are you, Lord.
darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken great are you lord it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only you give life you are love you bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing I just have a few announcements to put before you before we go our way. 
Um, the first would be, drum roll as I wait for this slide, almost as though I'm not prepared, but I am. Okay, Galentine's Brunch, yes. My wife tells me this is a thing. Um, it is happening, this thing, whatever it may be, I'm not that aware of, but it is for good reason, it's for the ladies. It's happening in Wallingford, Saturday the 11th, as I and you can read right now. Um, maybe we can organize a group from here to head on down there. Um, I would not be a part of that, obviously, but, so I'll let the ladies talk amongst themselves. But that is happening, put that on your radar. Um, should be a good time. I know it will be well run because I know the people in Wallingford that are planning it and they do not miss details. So that should be a good time. Um, the next announcement I have to put before you is for our youth, also in Wallingford. They are, ooh, escape room edition. That is intriguing. I do like those escape rooms. February 3rd, that will be in Wallingford. I believe the time is usually 5 p.m. Double check me. We can get that info for you, though, if you're interested. That is February 3rd. That is ages 10 and up, that event. Um, and then next... I want to thank you, first of all, for those of you who uh, have attended our family gatherings. We've had a couple over the past two weeks. Um, certainly, if you've missed those and are looking for an update on just where we are at as a church and our plan moving forward, please come find me after the service. Um, but we did, pass, we did email out a survey. So this is that time. If you got your phone, you could check your phone. It should be in your inbox. We've got a few responses. Thank you to to that select group. We need a lot more. So either two choices, fill that out um, online. It's a Google form that sent out by Ernan. Or for your convenience, we have some paper copies at the back. Uh, pretty straightforward. I'm thinking five minutes or less. But we really do need your feedback. It will help us move forward with confidence. Conf confident, you know, the whole passage today. It will help us move forward as a group. So please uh, do respond to that, and do respond today. We really need that response. Even better, this afternoon, now. Time is, time is not better. Please, we really could use that. Ernan's going to add something. It just might have, somebody behind me might have just found it in their spam folder this morning. So it could happen. Um, it's, it's coming from Ernan. I think the byline on his name is, just says an E up there. So don't be confused. It's legit. Um, yeah. So please, we really need that. That would be really helpful, um, even for a meeting that um, the leadership team is doing tomorrow. So um, lastly... Connect card, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you just want to get connected, um, we've got groups that meet, um, MC, small group, fellowships that gather. We'd love to plug you in. Um, you can, again, talk to me. Or there's a digital card at the, you can scan the QR code at the back, take you to a pretty simple, another form that you would fill out, and then we would then follow up and contact you. So let us now stand as we... Say our benediction as we go as sent people to community in need of God's hope. Let us say, God, give us grace. Go in peace and be a blessing. City of Seattle and beyond.
Thanks for coming, church. We love you. God bless.